The University of Connecticut is a pioneering body of research and innovation. This podcast brings you the stories, the motivations, the passions possessed by the people behind this success. Welcome to UConn in vivo. Our guest today, Jeffrey Agbar, is a professor of history, director for the study of popular music, and a hip-hop expert. This guy is so cool, and our conversation was so great and so varied that we're just going to jump right into it. Yeah, so what is it, like, do you have a project you're working on? Yeah. You're writing? Yeah, there's a, a book project that I've been working on for, I have a, an advanced contract, but it's been years, and it's, it's overdue to the press, to be honest, so yeah. I'm a little embarrassed about that. <laughs> so it's a history of the rise of political power in Atlanta, mm. and so I'm looking at the antebellum period and the formation of Atlanta and as this little rail town and how it emerges over the next 150 years. And so it is a bit more than I originally anticipated. And so hopefully I'll have a draft of it done in uh, January when I come back. Cool. Is this a selection of a volume of work or is this itself its own yeah, isolated brand, product? Yeah, yeah exactly. It's yeah. A, um, it began as looking at the last 50 years of Atlanta's history and then it just, I kept saying, well, to discuss the 1960s, I need to provide some context for the mm-hmm. 50s. And then I came across this real cool story about Gone with the Wind in 1939, this world premiere in Atlanta. It's like, well, I need to kind of provide context for these Confederate debutante balls in 1939. <laughs> and so then right. I found myself, I said, well, I need to provide some context. And so I was like, all right, let me just start from the beginning. <laughs> and so it started in 1847, mm-hmm. really. Wow. And so I'm, I'm not a Civil War historian, and so it takes me some time to get up to speed with the literature. Right. So I think that set me back. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything, though, has a timeline. you got to start. Like, yeah. You, and, you know. Always motivation, consequence. Exactly. Yeah. And it just it, it became, I think, a stronger piece, but then it just required me to just delve deeper into resources that I heretofore had limited familiarity with. Right. And uh, But it's exciting. I mean, it's this process where I feel like a student all over again. Like, sure. You know. I'm excited. I'll come home to my wife and like, hey, guess what I learned about Sherman coming through Atlanta in you know, 1864. Right. And she's like completely not interested at all. <laughs> so I go to my little two-year-old and I'm like, hey, hey, buddy, yeah. guess what happened? And so It's a blank slate yeah, filled with like, motivation. <laughs> he's playing with his blocks and everything. So. Yeah. <laughs> Have you always been a voracious researcher and always wanted to learn more? Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I read this a while ago that there are high school kids who are valedictorians, they've done these longitudinal studies and they found that they do well in life, mm-hmm. you know. But those students who do exceedingly well in one particular field and that sort of over everything, and in your cases, you're in the physical sciences, biological sciences, you have folks who might do exceedingly well, but when it comes to, you know, history right. or literature, it may not be your thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't fail, but you mm-hmm. weren't, you know, killing it discussing and deconstructing Milton, Right. right. So when it came to me in high school, I didn't think, oh, I'll grow up and be a historian, but I took these classes and I did well. And really in undergrad, I realized that this is, I didn't know anything about studies. (laughs) I didn't know anything about what this might predict, but I knew that this was what I liked and Mm -hmm. I did well in it. So I think from undergrad up, I... Yeah. What led to hip hop specifically? Interesting segue. So like many people of my generation, particularly I grew up in South Central L.A., 1980s, and I didn't know any male who didn't listen to hip hop and who wasn't a fan of hip hop. And it was a sonic backdrop to my life. And so we would get in debates. And even now I find with my students, I'll say, all right, you know, tell me your top five and, and why. And it's a 
people always have an opinion about it and people who are incredibly reticent Mm-hmm. I find can be opened up when you just talk about music mm-hmm. and it might not always be hip-hop it might be something else but I find that young people in particular but because even old people were young at once at one point even they have some opinion about music their favorite sure. artist the favorite period favorite genre why the genre may have fallen off all these different things and for me I was a hip-hop fan I was in graduate school actually took I'll take it back a little bit murder go back sure. to context mm-hmm. right <laughs> My freshman year in college, I had a history professor who, he had one lecture one day where he talked about understanding music, one needs to, to best understand music, one needs to understand the social political context out of which it emerged. So when we think of Sam Cooke singing A Change Is Going to Come in 1964, it means something when you understand what that meant in that particular historical moment mm-hmm. with the civil rights movement right. unfolding, right? So when you listen to the lyrics, it means something very different than if he had created this song in 1984 or 1994, mm-hmm. right? So that was like this, he had this incredible lecture that I thoroughly enjoyed. And he talked about Miles Davis and Pharrell Saunders and um, Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane and these jazz artists that I didn't know anything about as a freshman. Mm-hmm. And fast forward, I taught a class in graduate school that was one lecture that was modeled after that lecture. And I brought it up to hip hop and I talked about rap at that time in the late 90s and talked about how it was engaging with the social political conditions of our time and there was a student in that class who thoroughly enjoyed it and she said hey you know Jeff that was a real cool lecture would you mind giving it for our Black History Month this is at St. Lawrence University while I was visiting for a year Mm -hmm. and I gave the talk and then at that talk there was a professor who said hey Jeff I really enjoyed your talk you consider writing a journal article on it Mm -hmm. and you have it published in this journal where I serve I put it together, and in 1999, my my first article, Hip Hop, came out, and that was derived from sure. that, that talk. And it became a one-hit wonder article. This little article came out and became widely cited, and a lot of people shared it. I got invited to give talks. I didn't even have a book out or anything. And a press, University Press of Kansas, found out about the article and approached me and wanted to know if I'd be interested in writing a book. I was like, cool. And so I began writing that book, and that became Hip Hop Revolution, The Culture and Politics of Rap. And in the process of writing the book, I already had a little class uh, created here, you kind of first-year experience course on hip-hop. And then I expanded it to a three-credit course as an experimental course. Mm -hmm. And that class was very important for me as I wrote the book. My students were important. My students would... They would come to me like, Dr. Oakbar, we have uh, some MCs you should check out. Or what do you think of this guy? And I found out, I mean, there are a lot of folks I found out through my students. They would kind of keep me abreast of different things. Mm-hmm. And when it came to the title of the book, in fact, my students were important. The press and right. I disagreed over what the title of the book should be. I wanted it to be Hip Hop on Both Sides, The Culture and Politics of Rap. And they didn't like that. And that, it was a, an homage to Most Def's album, Black on Both Sides. Mm-hmm. But also I was discussing how hip-hop is a disputed space when in terms of authenticity. Like, you have some rappers, like, we can think of people now, like, you might think of, you know, someone like 21 Savage Mm -hmm. or someone like Kendrick or someone like J. Cole. They have very different aesthetics in Mm -hmm. hip-hop. Migos is, you know, as a group, they're very different than, like, a group from back in the day, The Roots, right? Incredibly different aesthetics, messages, everything. 
but they both consider themselves real in hip hop. So how is real defined? If these two examples are, he's going to ask you that exact question. Oh, okay. yeah, <laughs> I, was just, I was really curious about that. Like what. What is authenticity? I read that you've talked about this before, and I just wanted to get that definition. Realness, authenticity, what is that and in the context of hip-hop? Yeah, it? yeah. So this is something I tried to grapple with in the book. So I thought hip-hop on both sides would be a cool, mm -hmm. you know. The press didn't like it, so I went to my students, and the press and I came up with like three or four finalists of titles. So I put them on the board, and I went to my class. This was my hip-hop class. It was spring of 06. And uh, we put the three things up, and we took a vote, and the students won the hip hop revolution, and that's how we settled it. Nice. So UConn students, they're the ones that actually came with the title here. <laughs> that's cool. Uh, yeah, but you, you, I'm sorry, you had a question. Yeah, no. So just going back to that about realness in hip hop and authenticity in hip hop, the importance of that. Can you just explain what it means in hip hop? Why is that such an important concept? It's a great question because I'm not sure. I suspect it happens in other genres. From what I know of punk music, it has come up. Uh, from what I know about different genres of rock, it's come up. And it's come up in country music, even in 2019, when we think of Old Town Road. And you know, there are people who said, this is not real country. Mm -hmm. you know, And it was on the country charts and mm -hmm. taken off of it. So other genres have these conversations about, about what's real. Pop music, I don't really think of you know, Rihanna and, uh, I don't know, Taylor Swift engaging these sorts of it's conversations so yeah, yeah you know and i don't really think it's an issue in r&b either but i think in some genres it's more important than others and hip-hop i think is really important mm -hmm. and so the question why i don't have an easy answer for it i think that from its earliest incarnations you've had hip-hop artists in the different elements uh, so hip-hop is composed of the mc or rapper the dj or turntablist the b-boy b-girl or breakdancer and the graffiti artist so you have these different art forms that congeal in New York, in the Bronx, early 1970s, around 1973. Hip-hop organization formed. And in that earliest point, you, you have people having conversations about what's considered real, what's considered authentic, mm -hmm. you know, who's, who's really true to the art form. And there are two movies that come out in 1982. One is Wild Style, which is a movie, and one is Style Wars, a documentary. And both of those, this is before there's a hip-hop LP release, like a full album. This is before we have a hip-hop radio station, before we have a hip-hop magazine, before we have hip-hop, you know, we don't have anybody signed to major labels. Curtis Blow is signed, uh, I think, to Mercury later. But hip-hop is fundamentally an underground art form. But even at that point, there was a conversation about what's real. Mm -hmm. Like one guy who's a graffiti artist, He's incredibly successful on the street. And someone says, hey, you make beautiful art. This is outstanding. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's creative. It's innovative. Consider putting it on the canvas and selling mm -hmm. it downtown in an art gallery, like some people are doing. He's like, that's not graffiti art. Mm -hmm. Like, But couldn't you enjoy the music? I mean, couldn't you enjoy the money? I mean, right. you could be paid. He's like, nah, that's not real. Mm -hmm. And so even back then, there are people who are having these conversations mm -hmm. about it. And so the monetization of it, um, to some extent, the commercialization that some people thought this is such an, uh, a subaltern art form that its authenticity is sort of beholden to being uh, non-commercial. And then I think that theme has functioned throughout. So as it's become more commercial, there have been these questions about, okay, if we are commercial, then how are these aesthetics subversive to what we consider mainstream, even in the commercial space? So we might, to quote Jay-Z, say, we didn't go to the mainstream, the mainstream came to us. Mm -hmm. So I might produce something on my own terms 
but it's not for your consumption. If you like it, that's okay, but you came over to us. So then increasingly hip hop starts to create a subversive anti-authoritarianism that mm-hmm. sort of emerged out of hip hop. So there's a celebration of a lot of things that we would consider anti-social. And this was a way to like maintain that authenticity in spite of the commercialization exactly. of the realm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think part of it, which is a question I want to ask you, is that hip hop is more than just the music. Right, and so in your book, I noticed that you use it both as a noun and an adjective. Hip-hop is hip-hop, but then hip-hop can be used to describe other art forms, hip-hop graffiti or fashion, or like hip-hop style, right? So is the distinction that hip-hop is a cultural way of communicating across multiple streams? So you have, you know, through dialogue, it's rap, through art, it's graffiti, through style, it's street fashion, whatever it is. Does hip-hop encompass more than just music? Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a great observation. I love that characterization. So, yeah, hip-hop does have, um, it has inflections in all sorts of other spaces, mm-hmm. which is not entirely unique, right? I mean, we could think about, again, to go back to country music, I think you would find some fashion, perhaps some nomenclature, mm-hmm. and and punk music, the same thing. Right. But there's something about hip-hop that is artistic with these four elements and how these four elements have sort of evolved over the last 40 plus years and that that these elements make hip-hop so distinctive as an art form but its foundation is music it's like central yes. to music right? right so it all emanates from music as a foundation so when we think about the four elements of hip-hop the first to really and it, all right interestingly enough i'll just i'll say this real fast a lot of, and I say this in the book, but you'll see a lot of histories of hip-hop. They'll talk about the four elements of hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And they talk about graffiti art being one of those things. Graffiti art is infused onto hip-hop later, right? So the other art forms come around the DJ. In New York City, you have three big DJs, Cohort, Grandmaster Flash, and African Bambata. So the three of these guys come together. They have all these parties. And... There are no MCs, rappers as we know them now, right? And mixing, scratching, backspinning, those sorts of things don't happen yet. And the B-boys that we eventually come to know don't exist yet. But people come to those parties. It comes to the music. And it's the DJ who also functions as a master of ceremony. He Mm -hmm. speaks to the people, but he finds that he can't manipulate the records and they don't even have crossfaders yet. They don't have, you know, not going back and forth between two turntables. But he realized, I can't pay attention to the records and then engage the crowd in the same way, so I'm going to get my boy over here. Come on, DJ Hollywood, and I want you to mm-hmm. grab the microphone and rap to the people and you know, do something that's witty and it's engaging that will keep them captivated. So then you get the rapper that evolves out of that. Then you have different crews of young guys, primarily young Puerto Rican, African-American boys, young, young boys, sort of teenagers, who compete against each other dancing. And hip hop is entirely creative and and competitive, and b boying emerges out of that. And then you have those three elements, and that's hip hop. Right. And simultaneously, while that was going on, you have another art form happening and unfolding in New York City, which is uh, on walls and trains or graffiti style that emerges among primarily males, but they're white, black, Latino males, and is not constricted to working class and poor like the creators of the three elements of hip hop so far. So class-wise, it's diverse. Ethnically, it's more diverse because you have white males involved in that one. And that has nothing to do with the musical element. You have guys who are doing graffiti art who listen to you know, rock music, and they have nothing to do with rap music. Mm-hmm. Don't even like the people who created rap music, mm-hmm. throwing rocks at them when they try to come to their neighborhood. Right? They have nothing to do with hip-hop at all. 
But by the early 1980s, you know, it becomes sort of a part and parcel. It becomes inextricably connected to the others. Sure. And that becomes this non-musical element. So, but the foundation of what we know is hip-hop is music. Is music, And so yeah. out of that, you have these other things that sort of emanate. So to go off of that then, has hip-hop evolved from its origin? Like you said, it used to be, you know, party music, and then later it evolved into almost socio-political commentary. They leveraged the platform to, you know, speak about modern issues, but then now it's got a label of almost that rap no longer has that meaningful communication. And so is the evolution of hip-hop almost coming out of its origins? Like, it's hard to formulate that question, but is there no longer socio-political commentary in the music, or is it just hidden amongst other, you know, motivated dialogue? So it just occurred to me that we might look at the uh, industrialization of food in the same way we might think of the commercialization of rap. And that when we have Kellogg in you know, the turn of the century creating cereal, we have cornflakes. You don't have a whole bunch of, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of a whole bunch of, you know, varieties out. Mm-hmm. You just have this one thing. And it's pretty constricted. And over time, slowly but surely, you still have cornflakes. But if you look as a market share, right. I mean, cornflakes as a market share of cold cereal has diminished significantly, right? And I would say with hip hop, you have party music when it first came out, and they weren't, although the conditions in the South Bronx in the early 1970s, mid-70s, early 80s, mid-80s, late 80s, early 90s, up until the early 90s and perhaps mid-90s, the conditions in the South Bronx were nearly dystopian, Mm -hmm. just high crime, Mm -hmm. violence, drugs, all sorts of despair. But the themes of hip-hop when it first emerged were really tied to how music had been dominated. It was like party music, really, in terms of themes, more like disco. I mean, just you know, throw your hands in the air, wave like you just don't care. You've got on clean underwear, everybody say, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was like, you know, call and response. It was fun. Mm-hmm. It was escapist, right? And you could brag about things. And it was escapist in that I might, in fact, live in an apartment in deep poverty and suffer from material deprivation. But in my song, you know, I have credit cards, got two big dogs, I sunroof. Uh, I got a Lincoln Continental and sunroof Cadillac after school. I take a dip in the pool, which is really <laughs> off the wall. I got color TV so I can see the Knicks play basketball. So one might say that all art is political. And you can say even in that sort of celebration of escaping the dystopian world in which they live, they're providing a commentary just how exceptional it is to have. They actually literally say I have a, a color TV. That's a big deal mm-hmm. to say mm-hmm. that I have a checkbook. So in Rappers of Light, the guy saying, I have a checkbook, which we don't think is a mark of high status, that one is a one percenter because, you know, he has a checkbook. But in this narrative, simple pleasures are exceptional. And so that in itself can be read as some form of political commentary, although it's not inexplicit. It's sort of like Ice Cubes Today is a Good Day, which I think is most popular single ever. Mm -hmm. But he's saying stuff like, no one I know got killed in South Central today. Today was a good day. And for him... That's a that's a good day, right? Uh, but for us, that's an average. Everyone, like ninety nine percent, ninety nine point nine nine percent of people, don't have friends they know get murdered um, in a day, right? And so for him, he wasn't harassed by police that day. 
you know, he didn't have to resort to violence against anyone. No one resorts to violence against him. He knew no one who died. Mm -hmm. And so, but in some ways, that itself is social commentary. But the explicit forms of social commentary, to your point, really don't emerge until the late 80s. Right. And then when they come up with Public Enemy and Brand Nubian and a whole bunch of different groups, they become uh, sort of central to hip-hop's authenticity at a moment when hip-hop was going commercial. Right. And it allowed people to say, hey, you know, now we're going commercial in late 80s. So let's go back to the thing about being subaltern. Mm -hmm. You have in 1988 was a really important year. The Grammys acknowledge hip-hop for the first time or rap music. So they acknowledge rap music. But they think of rap as possibly a fad, so they don't even give them the award during the televised part. So they treat it like sort of Mexican polka music. They're like, it's such a marginal music that we're not even going to show them on TV. And the rappers who are nominated boycott and which mm -hmm. is to hip-hop's credit, mm -hmm. even as they go commercial, they're still like, we don't have to adhere to your standards and rules and niceties. You know, We say what we want to say, and we can be irreverent, and we're not going to bow and scrape and grin and all that kind of stuff. Sure. So then you have, as hip-hop becomes so commercial, the groups like Heavy Dina Boys, Fresh Prince, DJ Jazzy definitely Fresh Prince, and uh, a lot of these groups that are just straight party music, then you have Hammer and Vanilla Ice when they come out, they sell millions more than anyone else and the backlash hits and then people are like they sold out they're commercial they're watered down and the only way you can still be really authentic in hip-hop to go back to your earlier question mm -hmm. is to be subversive anti-establishment counter-hegemonic in different ways and there are two groups that come out with seminal albums in 1988 one is public enemy it takes a nation of millions to hold us back, and the other is N.W.A. Straight out of Compton, and so one, Public Enemy is a explicitly pro-black, you know, defiant, strong-willed, you know, subversive take on politics, and the other is a nihilistic gangster aesthetic that isn't pro-black, and they're not trying to talk about freeing black people at all, and they're just straight up, you know, gangsters who celebrate misogyny and mayhem and stuff like that. So those two become the expressions where no one's going to say you sold out because you're mm -hmm. a black nationalist militant or a gangster. And those two themes are the ones that dominate hip-hop ever since. So I was just wondering, are there are there other types of authenticity and realness in play here? So it's not just this aspect of anti-establishment, but rather like what it means to be a black person in America. And that that's such a common theme, like describing, you know, MCs will be describing their lives and how that makes them real. Like, uh, you know, oftentimes they'll be referencing either violence or women or, or what have you. Um, what is going on there? Yeah, I think there's some elasticity to how we might construct notions of authenticity. And to go back to your earlier point, and I'll just to say this, which I'll be as succinct as possible here, <laughs> the current forms, I would say that a lot of these so-called mumble rappers or this younger generation of rappers, they've talked about, uh, while they might traffic in a lot of themes that are fundamentally antisocial, like the misogyny. Like, I don't know anyone who's gone platinum since the late 90s. I've said this in multiple interviews. But the last time someone went platinum without on an album having someone referred to women as B's and H's, uh, that was 1999 with Wyclef's The Carnival and Will Smith's Millennium, right? So it was wow. the last two dope male rappers who've gone platinum without. So misogyny is such an intrinsic part to hip hop now that it's just sort of this mainstream expression. I think that there are albums that could have gone 
they didn't have to do it, but they, they do it. So there's always that sort of element there. And let alone, you know, referring to black people as N-words and that kind of thing. And then uh, the celebration of the drug trade in different mm-hmm. ways. So those things, I've never known rappers, like commercially successful rappers, I remember, unless someone can tell me, besides Macklemore. Macklemore, actually, and Ryan Lewis, and that, mm-hmm. the album that did go platinum, Macklemore doesn't refer to a woman as a B&H, but he has uh, Schoolboy Q on the song track where he does. Mm-hmm. And it would have gone platinum had Schoolboy Q not done it. I think there are albums that would have gone platinum. Had, I don't think you have to, it's but it's, it's ironic that, or it's interesting that no yeah. one's done it. So... I think that a lot of these guys now have talked about issues like mental health in a way that people really didn't talk about this back in the day. And I think that for me, it's important, it's great to see, and a lot of times I think old heads might dismiss some of these mumble rappers because the lack of lyrical complexity, we might consider lyrical complexity, the range of things they might talk about. but. They talk about a lot of different things, and some of those things I think are really important, and uh, like mental health mm-hmm. and how important it is, particularly to to black communities that mm-hmm. may not have had. Well, I don't. Know, I want to just put on black communities, but but you know, I think that it's important, and I've appreciated some of these engagements in ways I've never seen before. And it's not that it's absent because you've had rappers from back in the day. I could go back to you know, Ice Cube has a song. Um, the Dead Homies from 1990 where he talks about the struggles and the pain of losing someone and then people trying to drown multiple songs. Wu-Tang, when they first came out, you know, uh, said life of a shorty shouldn't be so rough. So by the time when they escaped, like smoking high is how he I could get by. And, you know, there's a, there's a way right. to sort of self-medicate because mm-hmm. one is dealing with depression. And a classic song that your listeners should check out and it's probably one of the most celebrated rappers of well, groups the Ghetto Boys, but within the Ghetto Boys is a rapper Scarface, and one of the most celebrated songs, their classic is My Mind Playing Tricks on Me, which is a cautionary tale, a moral tale, but it starts off with a guy talking about uh, paranoia, and he's dealing with, uh, he has mental anguish, and he's suffering emotionally because of you know his engaging in bath and the drug trade and mm-hmm. it's a very poetic wow. it's a beautiful song it's mm-hmm. really powerful so anyway you've had some of those things but they haven't been as dominant as i've seen sure. in the last few years yeah. i mean is that a change that you've seen because yeah. that, that was another thing i was going to ask you so you have something like jay cole a few years ago he came out with for your eyes only and in, in the last song you know he has this line we're saying like in the album he's basically recounting the story of a friend of his from childhood who grew up got into the drug trade and eventually died presumably involved with, uh, you know, drugs, uh, gang violence. And uh, this whole album is kind of a message to his kids where J. Cole is doing this for his friend, saying, like, your father always loved you. And at the end, he's saying, you know, your father, he wasn't a real man because, you know, he was violent. He wasn't a real man because he was with a lot of women. He wasn't a real man because he sold drugs. He was a real man because he loved you. Mm-hmm. And so I was just, you, you see a line like that, and I was wondering, like, does that represent a kind of shift in what the definition of realness and authenticity is nowadays? Like what artists are trying to mm-hmm. push and, and like uplift their own people? And that's, that's a great song. And, and thanks yeah. for bringing that up. Uh, that's, that's a really cool song. And J. Cole is one of my favorite artists. So, and he <laughs> does a lot of really cool songs that engage, you know, Middle Child, I think is, oh, yeah. this, it, you know, there's Hip Hop DX. If anyone ever wants to go online and check this out and they analyze this whole middle child thing and thinking about MC anyway the MCs who, who do a lot and keep it real and actually it, it, the DX episode talks about how we determine realness and authenticity in hip hop as well mm-hmm. and how it's a contested space 
and there are some MCs like Kendrick, J. Cole. Um, he actually mentions the game, who isn't as popular as it used to be. But these folks who are between the Jay-Zs and the Lil Yachty's, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have these people who sort of straddle, as J. Cole says, I'm, I'm big bro and little bro at once, right? So he has this sort of positionality that he can use. He's familiar with Tribe, you know, right? He's familiar with Jay, and he's familiar with these folks from back in the day. And he still messed with these young kids too, right? And so he and, and J. Cole is someone who has a lot of respect across, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think that I suspect that millennials, these little young kids in high school, college are checking for him like, you know, folks who might be in their early thirties are checking for him. And people who are still listening to hip hop in their late thirties are checking for him. So J. Cole has this sort of reach the way Kendrick mm -hmm. has and mm -hmm. you know, one might argue Drake and essentially I think that Big Sean is not thrown out there a lot, but I think Big Sean's a really good MC. And maybe you guys can convince me why Big Sean, or maybe tell me why, or maybe I just have an, an inflated perception of how good Big Sean is. He doesn't <laughs> sell like as, as yeah. robustly as J. Cole, but lyrically, I think he's a very gifted MC, mm -hmm. and I think of him as being in a sort of similar lane like these other guys. But anyway, I think that he might also be in a position to take advantage. But he's also someone who's also talked about mental health issues mm -hmm. as well, uh, Big Sean has. And to the question about authenticity, I think the authenticity is elastic enough that one can talk about all sorts of things. Like I, I actually, as much as I may come across as a curmudgeon sometimes, you know, like, ah, bah, humbug, these new dudes don't know what they're talking about. I believe in big tent hip hop, meaning that you can have a super ignorant rapper, like, you know, like Lil Yachty, right? Or some of these people that some of us might call coon rappers in hip hop, these minstrel buffoons, and they could still be part of hip hop, as mm -hmm. offensive as I might find them, and as buffoonish or whatever. You know, I'm, who am I to say that they're not hip hop? It might be hip hop I don't like, but they're still hip hop. And I don't, I don't really think that, like years ago, people, Luther Campbell, who was known as Luke Skywalker back in the late 80s, out of Two Live Crew out of Miami, appeared on the cover of The Source, you know, the premier hip hop magazine. And so, People, the source got all these letters of haters just saying, like, why did you put this dude? Miami bass music is not hip hop. Luther Campbell's not hip hop. Luther Campbell's whack. Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, even at the time, I didn't own one Two Live Crew album. I didn't like Two Live Crew. Mm -hmm. I didn't like Luke Skywalker. But I defended his right to be called hip hop. You know, mm -hmm. I just thought that it was arrogant for people to say that, you know, and I think hip hop should not be so insecure to want to kick people out because you don't like their style. Right. But what if it's more than just not liking their style? It's about them having a negative impact on society's view of that art form. So then you have like this, like we were talking about earlier, that rap is often viewed as ignorant and celebrating all these negative things, having a negative impact on youth. So like what about from that perspective that you can criticize these people? So it's not about your style. It's about what you're bringing to the table and what you're painting us as, that we're not you. Like, Yeah, yeah. yeah so to go back, if I could look at sort of a, food analogy. I suspect that in cereal, I had this conversation with my wife just this morning about um, my dad made fun of me when I was uh, maybe eight or nine because I wanted some Raisin Bran. And he was like, that's what old people eat. Right? <laughs> and he thought that I should want something like Fruity Pebbles. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I wasn't hostile with Fruity Pebbles. In fact, I liked Fruity Pebbles second to Raisin Bran, right? <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think that one can have healthy cereal or not so healthy cereal, cereal that might be excessive in sugars and dyes and perhaps other things that might be toxic, right? Or a cereal that could be extraordinarily healthy. So I think that 
one, because you have a cereal that's exceedingly sugary, and in fact, one can argue deleterious to a child's health, I wouldn't say that cereal is bad or cereal's gotten a bad name because you have Fruity Pebbles out there. Right. Do people still make Fruity Pebbles? Oh, yeah, I, I think, think so. so. Yeah. Okay, all right, there you go. Your <laughs> listeners will know what I'm oh, talking yeah. about. Okay. Uh, so I think that with hip-hop, you have Fruity Pebbles <laughs> and hip-hop, and, right. I, and, and I, I, I don't think that... Um, that one can say that that they have made, and the thing is that when people are convinced of a certain position, they will find every reason to reify their position. Mm-hmm. So, if they have already determined that hip hop is bad, they're gonna look for people like these coon rappers to say, "Hey, look at this guy. He talked about, you know, killing people, misogyny, and drug selling. That's why hip hop is bad." But one can also look at J Cole and talk about the complexity—not just the mm. lyrical complexity of J Cole, but also the ways in which J Cole has provide cautionary tales, yeah. like "For Your Eyes Only." He has a number of songs where he's where he's talked about drug dealing as a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? He's talked about mass incarceration. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's talked about police brutality. He's talked about having a college degree and being stopped by the police, right? In his videos, he's talked about slavery and resistance, right? Uh, he's talked about so much, a love for his mother. Uh, and so he, he's done so much in his music. And if one wants to celebrate what hip hop can do in terms of expressing a wide range of human emotion, good and bad, but also providing commentary like mm-hmm. the movies we watch. I'm going to be in line to watch Joker when it comes out in a couple of weeks, right? Cool. And I suspect that it will have a commentary in society. It won't be a celebration of violence, although there'll be a lot of violence in the movie. And I think that hip hop, yeah. like you know, the movie I'm about to watch in a couple of weeks can be understood in that same sort of artistic frame. So how influential do you think hip-hop has been in driving social change? I actually wrote an article in a book, so it's a chapter of a book, on hip-hop and Obama. It's like uh, called, it might be Hip-Hop and Obama or Obama and Hip-Hop, mm-hmm. something like that. So it came out in 2015, and it looks at the role that hip-hop played in Obama's election, and then looking at its relationship in the first two, primarily the first term, because the articles uh, end up coming out during the second term, some were modified a little bit. So I give a lot of attention to the ways in which hip hop was used to galvanize voters and young people in general in 2008. And you have all these organizations. So if those groups didn't exist, Obama may have been elected, I don't know, right? But in 2012, those organizations were, most seemed to be defunct or a a shadow of what they used to be. Mm -hmm. And Obama won again. And in 2016, those organizations were not mobilized, didn't exist. A lot of them, I think, closed their doors. And I didn't hear any of those organizations in 2016. Sure. And, you know, we see what happened in 2016. I'm implying that the core community of hip-hop and these organizations would have been anti-Trump. But I think that... Some people have argued that hip-hop was instrumental to affecting politics in the United States. And despite what I've written, clearly they were deeply involved. If they were essential, I don't know if I was central, I have no doubt that they added mm-hmm. to the political landscape. But that I'm just stopping short of saying that they were essential to transformative politics, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so there's then kind of, you know, clear examples of hip-hop being able to be used for positive change and also for being able to provide, again, going back to J. Cole, with positive examples of what is right and what you should work for in life and the struggles that you may have. But I'm wondering, is there any validity to 
claims on the other side that you know hip hop can be deleterious that it is you know dangerous for the youth kind of thing what what about that so i like to share this story because it is useful for people who engage in research and writing and, and also for people who aren't researchers for writers just people who make political decisions and vote and are engaged civically so let's see if i could do this in, in 90 seconds when i initially <laughs> thought of when i was writing hip-hop revolution my initial impulse was that the anti-intellectualism celebration of misogyny the violence that one can measure their impacts in black communities in particular given that black communities consume hip-hop at the highest rate so the largest market share are whites but of course whites are much more numerous than blacks but as a proportion african-american young people at 97 percent listen to hip-hop so when I looked at the data, I was surprised. So my hypothesis, my thought before the research, was that the black community, in particular young black people, that they were deleteriously affected by these anti-social messages. Mm -hmm. What I found was that black males in multiple studies measure the lowest rates of anti-women uh, sort of sentiment. They're more likely to endorse what we define as traditionally feminist values than white males or Latino males. There's one study with where Latino males are included, three studies where white males and black males are included. And in all three studies, black males are more likely to endorse traditionally feminist values mm -hmm. than white males. And the one study where Latinos are included, they're more likely to endorse traditionally defined feminist values than uh, the other two groups. Mm -hmm. And then, so I was surprised, like, wow, you yeah. know, hip hop is wow. super sexist, right? And then I found that the rate at which uh, black girls despite the hypersexuality that the black teenage birth rate was the lowest it had ever been, right? Teenage pregnancy rate had dropped. The graduation rates were at all-time highs. Black homicides were at all-time, well, lows going back to the 1940s. Um, black people graduated from high school, college, professional schools, the highest rates ever. Mm. So all these things that I kept sort of, although black people were being incarcerated at highest rates, mm. though that had more to do with over-policing. That's independent of. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? And so... I was actually surprised by what I found. So my hypothesis was incorrect, and I found this measure. And so for whites who consume hip hop, you know, they're still yeah. graduating rates at higher rates from high school, from college as well. So this deleterious effect did not seem to pan out. And the last thing I'll say is that it's because this commercial hip hop is not a reflection of the core values sure. of the black community. Okay. Yeah. If you look at black art going back to the 19th century, and you were to put on a scale and weigh like all the songs that are about love, you know, um, about affection. And you think you could go from Stevie Wonder to Billie Holiday to Aretha Franklin to Marvin Gaye, and they're all about love and affection. You know, my girl pining away for a girl, pining away for a guy, not about slapping people and beating people down and calling people bees and aces and all that. And that's actually anomalous in the expression of black art, right? So this this really is sort of anomalous expression that's not even consumed by mostly black people, right? So you have to kind of say like, you know, this is not really an authentic expression of what is going on in the community, but this is sort of caricature, if you will, mm -hmm. sort of make believe, you know, theatrical yeah. expression. And people take that to be real, and that's why. You know. So when you have like J Cole in like his song G O M D, uh, he says like people don't sing about love anymore, basically. Uh, like so, then you'd say that is purely a reflection of the music and not a critique on the culture itself, saying that like these ideals and values have shifted. 
I was unclear, like, hearing that song, how to interpret that, I yeah. guess. You know, I started doing this in the last maybe four or five years. I was an administrator for some years. I went out of the classrooms. I went to administration. I came back, and I started, uh, I have a segment in my hip-hop class where I look at love in hip-hop. Mm-hmm. And there's a journalist named Bakari Kitswana who has a book on the hip-hop generation. And Kitswana has a chapter entitled, Where Did the Love Go? And it's sort of a, an homage to an old uh, soul song, Where Did the Love Go? So it's part of a critique of genres of music, soul mm-hmm. and then rap music. And he's arguing that hip hop, that rap music has become sort of, um, you know, obsessed with all this misogyny and everything else. And it turns out that I have all these songs on love and I have a whole segment on love. And we look at different ways in which love is manifested in hip hop. We look at different Greek forms of love. So we have, you know, philia, which is a brotherly love. Agape, this sort of unconditional love that God has for people. We have um, Eros, which is an erotic love. Storge, which is a sort of familial love. So we look at these different types of love, and we look at hip-hop songs from your favorite commercial hip-hop artist. Someone like like 50 or Jay-Z might have a song like P.I.M.P. or Big Pimpin', which is straight-up misogynistic and foul, and then have a song like 21 Questions or Excuse Me Miss, which is about a real serious amorous love that is healthy and mm-hmm. not dependent on these misogynistic narratives. And then you have songs like Jay-Z's Anything where you know he's talking about the love he shares for a friend that he's literally like, I will do anything for you. you know, um, I will die for you. I'll provide for your kids for you. If something happened to you, you could count on me. For, and he's, it's this, and J. Cole, right? For your eyes only is a song about love. It's Philia, right? So he's talking about this sort of love. 2014, Four Sales Drive is a great album. And he's talking about his mother, love for his mom. And so you have familial love, you have eros, you have love for your homies. You have all sorts of love throughout hip hop. Even the most thuggish, ignorant, gangsterous rapper out Mm -hmm. there, I suspect, will have some song about some facet of love. It might not be for like Migos. I don't want to pick on Migos or Lil Yachty or, I don't know, some of these like dudes dudes. But I suspect if they don't have a song about their mama, about their girlfriend, or they probably have a song about one of their boys, somebody about some sort of love. In some cases, it's about missing it. It might be a heartfelt song, their struggle over depression and mental anguish because of an absence of someone, right? It could be a father or someone and, you know, that kind of thing. So you have all these songs have dealt with love. So hip hop is actually quite rich mm-hmm. in talking about love, you know? Although we often don't think of hip hop having that capacity. We think of commercial rappers. We think we don't really think of them struggling over love, yeah, but right. they do all the time. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, yeah please. Okay. So <laughs> one, I'm assuming you listen to hip hop because I can tell how much you're, you're going in and everything. And mm-hmm. so maybe- I do a little bit, okay. yeah. So one, uh, when I hear your top five, but if you can tell me what your opinion on Big Sean, because I find that, I mean, maybe you're not that familiar with Big Sean, but I'm kind of see what you think because uh, he's one of the MCs that I love to to hear his word play, and I find mm-hmm. him very innovative and creative. And then finally, I'm dying to hear your opinions. Uh, a lot of people ask me about Kanye and his whole, like, you know, where he is, like with mental mm. state and that kind of stuff. But he also intersects with some of the issues we've talked about in terms of when he, he's talked about love and a whole bunch of songs. Right. He has also talked about social issues in a lot of songs. He's talked about, you know, mental illness has come up as well. He's an enigma. He's yeah. been everywhere. He's Just, everything. It's crazy. Yeah. You want to go yeah. first? Yeah, I don't know. So, <laughs> favorite, uh, just 
the easiest to get out of the way, J. Cole is by far my favorite. He's just amazing lyrically. Um, and then what he talks about, like it, and the way he just tells a story. I mean, all of his music is just, it's a story. Uh, the way it's crafted is amazing. Um, so that one's easy. Uh, Logic, uh, probably my next favorite. Uh, Kendrick. And then, then it starts to get more difficult as I try to de- yeah, decide. After three, it becomes like after, people you listen to but might not be, you know, behold yeah, the people that I, favorite. That I just, like, I'll sit and I'll listen to, like, a whole album all the way through just to, like, enjoy the, the narrative that's going right. through the, you know, the, the album. Um, I'll just say that. Those are definitely my top three. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to overlap. And Kendrick, definitely. But I, I like Tribe Called Quest a lot. Oh, wow. I was going back. Okay. Yeah. Tribe and then Chance. And those are my top three, I would say. Um, but yeah, then beyond those three, like I'll appreciate J. Cole mm-hmm. and other rappers and other artists and other you know eras of hip hop, but I don't think I would l- religiously listen to them as I do listen to the other three. Yeah. But then going to Big Sean, I would say, yeah. like, just never had an impact on me. Where you know I think he's good, but I never listened to a song and left thinking, "Wow, that was great." And I don't know if that's just myself as a naive listener or if that's just I didn't appreciate, you know, the value of what he was saying. Maybe didn't pick up on it. Mm-hmm. I also don't know. I could be totally wrong here, but I don't know how much material he's putting out. So, someone like J. Cole frequently putting out albums and quality albums, mm-hmm. where, like you're saying, they tell narratives, they tell stories. There's ebbs and flows of messages communicating, where it's like, you know, high end street, but then low end like emotion and deep feeling. And so, you get a lot out of that one album. But I don't know. I could be totally wrong. Mm-hmm. I just haven't critically assessed Big Sean's music enough. Okay. Honestly, I'm in, a, I think, a similar position where it's just like, it's just J. Cole spoke to me in such a way that, like, I almost didn't even look beyond that. That, I think, is also part of the issue. But what I have heard has not struck me in quite the same way. That's not necessarily a critique on Big Sean, like, so much as just maybe more kudos to J. Cole kind mm-hmm. of a thing. Yeah. Okay. So I am not actually, as much as I like, and I I mentioned Big Sean, and if I were to do my top five, Big Sean wouldn't be in it. Although (laughs) um, Kendrick is certainly in it now. And anyone who was my student from, say, seven years ago would be surprised because when Kendrick, he came to UConn years ago. Yeah, he did. And... Were you undergrads when he came here? J. Cole did too. Okay. Oh, he did? Yeah, he did. What was this? Must spring 15? This, yeah. I think that was 14. your freshman year it was before i it was my sophomore no oh. no you're right it was my freshman yeah. year. you're right it was my freshman yeah. year yeah was it what, so that was, was 20 i think it was 2014 was yep. when he came okay i don't so. know when kendrick came kendrick came before that i think so i think so too because after that was schoolboy q schoolboy q came i remember that but I, yeah kendrick hasn't been here since since we've been here man yeah. when kendrick came out people were like oh my god oh i love kendrick so much <laughs> oh he's the best ever I was like, man, nah, he's not that good. (laughs) (laughs) And for me, I kept saying that Kendrick, to me, was like, I'm just riding with these food analogies. Let me keep going on. So (laughs) I was like, well, imagine if you just survived off the Skittles and Funyuns and, like, pork rinds for a year, you know, Mm. and, like, Kool-Aid. And all of a sudden, someone gave you filet of fish and fries. I mean, the filet of fish and fries would seem like health food. It would just be, like, highbrow, you know, cuisine in comparison to survive off of Skittles and pork rinds and I said that you know hip hop has just been you know 
bombarded by like Skittles and pork rinds and Funyuns for so long. And now that you have a flat fish, you think it's like, you know, something really great. But I was one over, you know, and so I really started to listen to him. And I think that how I measure someone as a very good MC is not just the lyrical ability because there are a lot of underground MCs. And this was my earlier thing. Mm-hmm. Like, well, there are a lot of all these underground MCs mm-hmm. who are better and all that. But there's not just having lyrical dexterity. It's production. It's charisma. It's creativity. It's um, you know also impact and what you do. And I think that you know he's had a chance to come out with like brilliant albums and concepts like you know it's Pimp a Butterfly, yeah. and then Damn for me is just a high watermark. Mm-hmm. And and before that, I mean there were songs that I, yeah, I liked and all that, but I could just put on. Damn, I, I'm a runner, and I could just I could play that album, yep. and I don't have to just fast forward through songs I think are whack. But it's such a brilliant album all the way through. The range and the complexity, the multi layers of his songs, when he talks about how discursive his art is, how he engages his intertextual allusions, like he's referring to this text, he's referring to a movie, he's referring to novels, he's referring to poems. I mean, he has this like homage to great art and artists like Alice Walker and Gordon Parks, the photographer. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does so much, and also, what I respect is what he does for his community too. Like he, that is a yeah. cherry on top, right? Yeah. So, I became a huge. You <laughs> so know, if he was a fillet of fish and fries when you first <laughs> heard him, how would you describe him now? Oh man, <laughs> I would. I would have to. You know, I'm a pescatarian. I, I mean, I'm almost a pescatarian. <laughs> so, um, and, and no offense to vegans out there, but I have to say, like a really nice, uh, you know, like salmon. You know, it's a full dinner with mm-hmm. roasted. Broccoli yeah, and yeah. You know, some potatoes around there, man, <laughs> and some some nice spring water. This is a wholesome meal. It's a wholesome meal. Very healthy, nutritious with uh, sure. nutritious with some omega threes and everything, and protein and and uh, the, the right balance of carbs and fat. So I, I would say that he's he actually brings it all there, and I, I just am a huge fan. I can't wait to his next album. I mean, to follow up with Damn is going to be a, a right. big deal, and I think that J Cole struggled after I don't know how you felt 2014 Course of Drive with me. Huh? That was my favorite. That's my yeah, favorite album. Yeah, by him. exactly. Right. But you know who else was really good? It's Shadows Gambino. Oh, yeah. Because oh, of the internet. Yeah. Lyrically incredible. Yeah, oh, my mm-hmm. God. And production, man. Yeah. Because of the internet. My beef with him is that he doesn't produce enough. Right. There are a few albums. In fact, I might say that because of the internet, I listened, I think it's 2013 when it came out, but that's amazing. It's six years now, right? It's crazy. But I know, it's wild. That album, I've probably listened to more than any single album in the last five years. And I would say that 2014 was probably second mm-hmm. and damn third. And I also like, although I don't listen to him as much, Jadena. And 85 to Africa came out maybe last month. Mm. It's brilliant. Yeah. So check it out. It's, right. it's, it's outstanding. Yeah. I was curious, sorry, you uh, going back to what you were saying, like you thought J. Cole struggled after, was it after 2014? Yeah. What? I mean, like Born Center was good, but I think for me, his because the internet or his damn was 2014 Force yeah. Drive, right? Yeah. Um, for me, Ice Cube's High Water Mark may have been, and I disagree with a lot of people who are Cube fans, but Cube is one of my all time of all, you know, going way back. But, you know, that was like back when I was much younger. I would say that The Predator was probably my favorite Cube album and Death Certificate. Mm be a close second but a lot of people say America's Most Wanted it got five mics from the source 
you know, an Equimini for Outcast would probably be that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, let's see, for Tribe, I guess people would probably say. They had a lot of good albums, though, but um, Midnight Marauders yeah, is so widely celebrated. Low End Theory, those two. There are certain albums that people just, like, point to as, yeah. like, when an artist's high watermark. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes it's unfair because people romantically talk about Nas as Illmatic and, you know, it came out and then, you know... Um, but yeah, yeah, that's how I kind of feel about. I don't know how, how do you how do you feel about? Uh, oh no, it's definitely. I, I so I like For Your Eyes only. Uh, I think that it wasn't quite the follow up that maybe 2014 should have had. Uh, but it, I really enjoyed it, and it was less about the music on that one for me. It was just the story he was telling was so impactful. Um, but then Kod, it, I liked it, but it didn't quite do mm-hmm. it for me. Um, and he, I know he has a new album out. I haven't had the chance to really give it a proper full run through yet. Um, so I can't give you an opinion on that one, but I personally thought KOD was a little bit weak. Um, but yeah, you know, kind of summarize everything here in the end of your book, this is 2007, right? You Mm -hmm. say, you know, you don't know what the state of hip hop will be in 15 years and it's now 12 years later. It's not 15, but are you happy with the state of hip hop today? And, And is this what you would have predicted, or do you see a bright future ahead for this culture? Excellent question. These are like some of the best questions I've had. <laughs> really, I mean, I'm saying that to be, you know, I'm being truthful here. I would say that from the time the book came out, it's been in a holding pattern in terms of where hip hop has gone commercially. The aesthetics have changed, you know, fashion has changed, and the rise of mumble rap mm-hmm. the triplet flow those things didn't exist but i'm not mad at the triplet flow kind of i'm completely not bad I, I like to see eminem i love how eminem can adopt all kind of things as right. he critiques it you know it'd be like your style is whack but i can do it i'm gonna do it <laughs> right now and diss you using your style right but you can't do mine and you right. could do all this stuff so to see eminem evolve as this like og like in the game now and how he critiques these folks is fascinating. To see people like Drake and the aesthetic that Drake came out with, which was very different. Mm-hmm. And I think to some extent, um, Kanye was important for opening a door for people like Drake and J. Cole, mm-hmm. and to some extent, Logic. Um, and I think that, you know, and Kanye says that, like, you know, who's rocking pink polos, you know when I came out, right? So he was able to do something that was such an aberration from either the Black Nationalist Conscious stuff of um, Dead Prez, you know, or Immortal Technique or some of these underground cats who weren't penetrating to the suburbs or just Young Jeezy and the Hood dudes, right? And DMX, these guys. So I kind of think that while some people are not as big as they were then, they've had people who have aesthetically been their heirs, right? Mm-hmm. And... So I haven't seen a big disruption. Um, I did not anticipate the degree of creativity with like SoundCloud rappers, and and it's interesting because you always can't anticipate how creative hip hop can, well, how any art form can sure. be. But hip hop, I've written about this as well, is that there's a particular genius and business acumen that we see in hip hop that people often don't give attention to. And when you have young people like uh, Kareem Biggs, uh, Jay-Z, and Damon Dash come together with Rockefeller Records mm-hmm. and have unprecedented business deals that 
will make them hundreds of millions of dollars in a way that Madonna and Michael Jackson and Phil Collins and all these mainstream people that Elvis never did. I mean, these are they're, they're attorneys and people who went to Harvard Business School in Wharton haven't been able to make deals like this, but Jay-Z and these guys were, who were in their 20s. Right. And I think that that business acumen in hip hop, where you have a billionaire now, and I knew that was coming. Even when I wrote this, I knew that the three richest guys that you know somebody was gonna hit a billion. Sure. I thought Diddy would do it first. Actually, I can't say I'm that surprised, and I'm not disappointed. It just is, you know. It just uh, it is, and I I still enjoy it. And I think the last thing I want to say is that like people like J Cole and Kendrick keep me engaged and keep me excited about it. There are a lot of times I'm thinking like, I don't know if I'm be able to keep up with this kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. like ridiculous. I'm listening to XM radio. I'm like offended. (laughs) BS. I can't listen to this. And then there'll be like a really hot song. And I'm like, ah, okay. And a new, someone Mm. will come around and I'm impressed. I'm like, I'm looking them up and then listening to them. So there's always someone kind of pulling me in and I appreciate that. I think we might be out of time, but I did read you had a great story about Diddy that you love to retell. I don't know how long it takes. Uh, Yeah, I can tell it. It's uh, I told it one time, and it was a parents' weekend here at UConn, mm-hmm. and I was the featured professor for parents' weekend, and they gave out 75 copies of one of my books to those who came, and it was a lot of fun. And someone in the audience read that, yeah. And then during the Q and A, they asked me, and it's the only time in all my talks where someone ever asked me to tell the Diddy story, right. and uh, so this is the second time, and so you've really done your homework. <laughs> So it is a little embarrassing. So in the beginning of the book, I mentioned how I was fortunate to be like a sort of Forrest Gump, those people who watch Forrest Gump, mm-hmm. um, where he was at all these historical moments and saw all these amazing people and all these things happen. And I just, by happenstance, would be in places when I was writing the book. And, I, you know, I'm not a celebrity. I'm not one of these. I'm not this fancy guy who just gets invited to all these things. But... It would just happen that traveling or being at some event, I end up rubbing elbows with all these hip hop folks. Mm-hmm. And over the years, from undergrad up, I just recounted all these people, everyone I could think of, from Tupac to Karis One to Russell Simmons and you know Jurassic Five and all these people. And then Diddy is in there. And Diddy, the story says that uh, thanks for the what's up, the subsequent diss, and one of the funniest stories to retell. So it's embarrassing. I was younger, and I went to Morehouse undergrad. Diddy went to Howard, and Howard and Morehouse are rivals. Mm-hmm. And we back then played homecoming games against each other each year. They would come to Atlanta one year, we'd go to D.C. the next year, mm-hmm. and that's how it went. And Diddy was a party promoter back in the day in uh, at Howard. I may or may not have gone to his parties. I don't know, but he was a party promoter, mm-hmm. and I went to parties in D.C. at the time. So fast forward. I'm at a club in D.C., this club called Love. It's mm-hmm. this big, massive, three-story club. I don't know if it's still around. And I'm up there in this club, and I'm trying to talk to this lovely lady, and I've been drinking a little more than I should have been drinking, and perhaps feeling myself a little more than I should have been feeling myself. <laughs> and lo and behold, uh, like all this failing of like Secret Service type people come in, and that level of the club, there was a private bathroom that for this one room that... When Diddy came in to use his private bathroom, and as he came into the room, his eye swept the crowd. I'm sitting up there <laughs> with this lady, and I see Diddy come in, and so I see him, and he's just looking at the crowd. He comes over, he sees me up there. I, I give like a what's up, and Diddy gives me a little what's up, 
And I'm like impressed <laughs> yeah. that, you know, Diddy gave me a what's up. Right. And then Diddy goes to the bathroom, but someone's in, so he has to wait there by the bathroom door. And while he's there, I look at her, I'm trying to impress her, and <laughs> the alcohol is too much. I can blame it on the goose. And I was like, yeah, I know, dude. <laughs> She's like, oh, really? I said, yeah, you know, I went to Morehouse back in the day. You know, he went to Howard. We used to come up here, go to the parties and everything. So I was like, lying. Mm-hmm. But I was halfway thinking I was not lying, right? Sure. So I was like, okay, and, you know. Rationalizing. Yeah, it could it possibly be true. true. Yeah, right? And so um, so I was like, yeah, um, hey, you want to you wanna meet, dude? <laughs> and she was like, no, no, I'm okay. And so as she was coming out, I said, let me go just say what's up to my man real fast. So I, I get down, <laughs> and as he's leaving, I come out to say what's up to Diddy, like give him a pound. And as he comes through, he has all these bodyguards and everything, and you know people are looking at him like, oh, that's Diddy, you know, Diddy. And so I come up to him, and I extend my hand to give Diddy a pound, to give him a handshake, and he's talking to the bartender, and he can see from his peripheral vision that yeah. I'm trying to shake his hand. But he's being an a-hole, and he mm. doesn't want to shake my hand. So I'm there, and because it's Diddy in this room, 100% of the eyes are on him, mm-hmm. which means 100% mm-hmm. of the eyes are on, on me, you. looking like a fool with my <laughs> hand extended over Diddy like this. So I'm like, hey, Diddy, what's up, man? <laughs> so the dude ignores me. So I say a little loud. I'm like, hey, Diddy, what's going on, man? <laughs> so the so dude is still ignoring me. I'm like, wow, Diddy's really making me like yeah, an yeah, asshole wow. now, man. So I was like, oh, dude. So I then, there's no way I get around this, so I tap him on the shoulder. Like, all right there, man. Uh, <laughs> I'll holler at you. I'll see, I'll see you when uh, you, y'all going to be at the, in, the, in the room, right? All right. So the bodyguard looks at me as I tap him on the shoulder. And I look at the bodyguard. I'm like, yeah, hey, man, all right then, you know? And it's like, I look like the biggest clown in the world. <laughs> right. And Diddy did that because he was like being an asshole himself, mm-hmm. right? And he walks out. So I walk back up to this lady. And I sit there in utter silence and embarrassment. There's no way I can work myself out <laughs> sure. of this. And so I just kind of came clean. I was like, yeah, I got you know, this by Diddy. And she's like, uh, you know. Hey man, things happen. Uh, well, I'll talk to you later. She gets and walks away, right? So I'm sitting there by myself up in this room. Thank you, everyone. You know, she walks away and Diddy walks away. Check out all of our material on iTunes. Reminds me not to lie. You can check out our social media at InVivoPod for both Twitter and Instagram. And email us with any comments or suggestions. That's so great. It's perfect. InVivoPod.com. I'm your host, Kyle Drake. You can find me on social media at underscore Kyle Drake. The people who make this possible are co-host Victor Kaye. You can find him as well at underscore Victor Kaye. Our editor is the awesome Kevin Ryan. 